You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. So this is 2023, and in the future, we may look back on 2023 as the year of the strike. And the reason for that is if you're a subscriber to LaborUnionNews.com's News Digest, you're probably familiar with the story that we've run a couple of times based on a Bloomberg report last year that there are more than 150 large labor contracts set to expire This year, in 2023, they affect more than 1.6 million workers. And that includes contracts like the UPS Teamster contract, the Detroit 3 UAW contracts, Verizon Communications with Mild Union, the CWA, and a host of others. And that does not even include the hundreds of other newly unionized employers heading to the bargaining table for the first time amidst a labor shortage. So it's likely that we're going to see a lot more strikes in 2023 than we have in years. And so last week, I was listening to a friend's podcast, uh, which is the U.S. Manufacturing Workforce podcast, and the host, Michelle Vincent, who I've been on her podcast, I wanted to have her on mine over a topic, she was talking about the contracts coming up, particularly Caterpillar and and, uh, one that just ended, a strike that just ended, CNH, and talking about gearing up for potential strikes. So I thought it would be fantastic to have her come on and talk about what goes into strike preparedness. Now, Michelle is the Senior Director of Marketing and Sales for Maticorp, and Maticorp for years was involved with contingency planning, security uh, resources, temporary staffing, etc., for employers that had labor disputes. And although they're no longer providing those services to organizations that have labor disputes, she is a wealth of information. Now, I wanted to do this episode specifically because with all of the potential labor disputes coming up or we're in the midst of in 2023, Unions prepare for strikes, and I realized this when I was a union member and union rep and having been out on strike, as do employers, and it's basically the economic weapon of both parties. So it makes sense that while you can hope for the best, you also want to prepare for the worst. In any case, here's Michelle Vincent. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Michelle Vincent... Welcome to Labor Relations Radio. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Peter, and talk about strike planning. Right. So this, we, I was on your podcast several months ago, and you host a podcast, which is the U.S. Manufacturing Workforce. Maybe that messed that name up. Nope, you got it. <laughs> but um, I was listening to you last week, and you were touching on the Caterpillar negotiations and UPS negotiations, and and you touched on strike preparedness. And I thought this was a good opportunity to get you on because you have tons of experience with it. But can you explain for the listeners what Manicorp does? Sure, and and did probably. Yes. So we've had a little bit of a change to our services, but for the past thirty years, what we 
were primarily focused on was contingency planning, strike contingency planning for organizations. So we would help companies develop strike contingency plans, and we would provide strike replacement workers and labor dispute security teams to keep companies operational and protected during a work stoppage. Um, and so I guess just since the pandemic, I would say our services have been changing a little bit. The demand for our type of service minus the picket line really increased. So essentially what we do is we recruit um, labor all around the country and we move teams to where they're needed. And so as the demand for that increased um, as a company, we decided to take a look at our operations and focus on staffing unrelated to labor disputes. And so our services over the past few years have kind of dwindled down on the strike side a little bit just to kind of focus on staffing unrelated to labor disputes. But as of January 2023, we have officially paused all um, strike-related services, contingency planning, strike staffing, strike security. Those are all paused. I have been providing the service, though, for Corp for 15 years, so I am a wealth of information. I've seen a lot. We've serviced a lot of different types of companies across different industries. So I'm super happy to talk about it and um, provide my insights and even some suggestions for companies that have contracts coming up for expiration this year. Well, and I think um, part of the necessity for doing a, a podcast like this, or at least an episode like this, is that we've got, according to Bloomberg, over 150 major labor contracts coming up for renewal this year. There's 1.6 million workers involved with that. So the likelihood that we're going to see more strikes, and you touched on Caterpillar and a couple others on your podcast last week, um, the necessity for preparedness is probably greater than we have seen in a long time. Yes, right. and I would say, I just want to make sure I get this correct here. So when uh, I had you on my podcast, you had a statement that said um, unions and non-union employees have more leverage than they've had in probably decades. And so I think that companies really need to think about that when they uh, start their contingency planning it's always been in a company's best interest to prepare contingency plans in advance of their contract expiration, of course. Um, but now more than ever, I think it is um, super important to make sure that you have a solid contingency plan in place. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, back in 2021, I think it was, there was a whole bunch of strikes. I think that's what we talked about a little bit when you were on my podcast. I think that was the year, if I have it correct, mm -hmm. but there was Kellogg's, John Deere. Yep. Yep. Um, and so you, you just want to be fully prepared. And I think sometimes maybe what people don't recognize too is when you have um, a labor pool that is comfortable with doing labor disputes, it's obviously a different work environment. Not everybody's comfortable with um, with going to work during a strike. Um, what's going on all across the country in uh, at similar companies or just um, you know in in the industry in terms of strike can have an impact on worker availability for your strike. And so. Um, it is important to have enough time. It is important to figure out, you know, where you're going to source your labor. Are you going to use your own sort of non-union employees, an outside agency like Maddie Corp, um, and make sure that you allow enough time to really get those plans together. So, so let's kind of set the foundation a little bit. Um, I, I've always worked and I live under this premise of you hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Yes. Right. Yep. And so that's kind of when you're dealing with labor relations and, well, these days it's not even unionized employees that are mostly going out on strike. We're seeing a lot of non-union workers going out on strike, oftentimes without warning. 
Yeah. And now we're seeing, you know, of course, all the organizing activity last year is now going to the bargaining table in many cases. And there's a, there's a section out of the Teamsters strike manual that I think it's important for whoever the listeners are, whether you're union side or employer side, a union's bargaining power depends on three main elements, the right to strike, the ability to strike effectively, and the company's ability to withstand a strike. And then it goes on to say a strike should not be undertaken lightly. First, the strike is the ultimate economic weapon, and it can backfire. And that's right on the first page of the Teamster Strike Manual that was written back in, I think, the 1970s. And and that has not changed, right? So we're seeing... Right. We're seeing Starbucks workers going out on strike. We're seeing Amazon workers, you know, here and there going out on strike, mostly overseas, but they're, you know, going out and protesting and stuff like that. So you've got to have a contingency plan. Yes. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, it's going to be, you know, depending upon the organization, it could be um, somewhat basic or extremely complex. Right. So we're seeing, we just saw a three-day strike at the hospitals in New York, um, I think it was two hospitals that were out on strike for three days. You know, they obviously got a contract. Um, there's a strike going on in in Alabama that's going on two years now with the mine workers down there, right? So it's what you're saying is, you know, a hospital's probably different than a coal mine. Yeah, it's it's very different. Obviously, um, you know, continuing patient care is critical. Providing safety, um, even just from a strike security perspective, it seems kind of simple. You have guards; they do documentation. But you know, we did a, a hospital strike a few years ago. Now, uh, it's it's a public facility, right? So it's different security uh, needs than a, a private property facility. Um, we deployed two hundred. Uh, security officers. I think there was around 8,000 SEIU members on strike. And so um, very different, uh, you know, depending upon the location, the number of locations, things like that. Right. And so what you're saying, though, is um, it's getting harder to do that due to the fact that there's a labor shortage. So, yeah, I mean, it's always been a little bit difficult to um, staff for a labor dispute because it is a maybe job for an unknown duration. That's what we're selling workers, right? We can't tell them who the company is. We don't know when or if it's going to happen, and we certainly don't know how long it's going to last. Um, But that's just the nature of the business, so that's pretty standard. But in this labor market, um, you know, it's a little bit more difficult to find people. If you're having difficulty hiring for full-time employment with paid time off and benefits and all that stuff, um, it's... there's no magic pool, magic wand that we have, right? We're going to experience similar challenges. It's different, though, because we're sourcing labor from across the United States. So we can typically find more skilled people. That's how we can get the volume of people when we have to bring hundreds of people into a facility. Um, and so it's it's certainly doable, um, depending upon the number of people that you're looking for. There's different strategies that you can apply to, to make it a little bit easier, Um so, so let me let me start with some questions, and let's kind of go through these. My okay, so I'm an HR manager. My employees just unionized. Um, I know that we've got to go to the bargaining table, and I also know that a union could call them out on strike at any time. It's not contract expiration where they're banned or barred from striking until the contract expires, but at any time, my employees could go out on strike. What's my first step? Well. I guess your first step, and this is going to be a little bit outside of what we normally um, 
you know, assist with, but your first step is really going to be to pull together a strike planning team who are the managers and the leaders within your organization that need to start working on this plan and be a part of this process. Um, I think the biggest thing really from there, once you pull together your team and you figure out who's going to do what, you're going to have to figure out, you know, how your operations are going to continue in the event of a work stoppage. Are you able to, um, you know, move production or move business from one site to another site? Do you have to run, you know, all of your business? Can you, can you pause some of your business? You really need to dig into your operations under normal conditions and then how you want to operate in the event of a labor dispute. Um, and then from there, you know, then you start to think about, all right, where are we going to get the personnel for this? Are we, do we have enough people internally within our organization to step in? Sometimes we have, you know, managers, people from other site companies do different things. Um, maybe you need an agency to provide all of the labor for you, at which point you're going to want to start to reach out to the companies like Maddie Corp and all the other companies that provide those types of services to begin those conversations to, um, you know, figure out, you know, the sort of preliminary process. A lot of the times, um, if you have enough time for this, best practice is really to get an agency into your facility. Um, if you're looking for operations and security, that's typically they come in, they look at your operations under normal conditions and work with you to put together a staffing and security plan to continue those operations in the event of a labor dispute and make sure you have um, the right security and protection in place to keep everybody safe. So... That's that's kind of the first steps. So I've seen kind of the gamut of companies that um, have multiple sites. They sometimes will have a rapid response team of both managers and other hourly employees who can, you know, at a phone call, get on a plane and they have hotels set up and all that sort of stuff. I've also seen um, a company many years ago that actually brought in about 600 replacement workers during you know, the contract negotiations had the workers train up their replacements just in case they went out on strike, which a lot of people don't know that that's lawful to do. Yeah. Oh, it is. And I would say for companies that we've worked with where they have brought in our team in advance of a strike to begin training, what you're doing there is you're demonstrating a certain level of preparedness. And so depending upon, you know, what's going on in negotiations and the type of people that they have in the union, that's really going to have them sort of pause and decide, do we really want to go on strike, right? The company is clearly prepared. They do have the skilled labor or replacement workers needed here to keep their company uh, to keep their company operational. And so sometimes that can actually avoid a strike altogether. So as part of that contingency planning process, sometimes, you know, a company will do that. They'll bring in even a small group of people, maybe not the whole replacement workforce to begin training on critical equipment and things like that and um, just demonstrate that level of preparedness. And I, I think the same thing can also be um, considered from a security perspective. So sometimes um, companies will bring in a security team and post them maybe you know, before a contract vote or something like that. Again, that's just demonstrating that you are taking the steps that you need to keep your business protected and, and stay operational. So those are things, obviously, we always advise our customers, consult with your legal team. Sometimes companies do want to make that demonstration, and then other times companies do not want to do that. So sometimes a company will bring us in ahead of time operations and or security 
and we get everybody ready in a hotel nearby for an immediate response if there's a strike, right? People can immediately go to post. The security team can do everything that they need to do in advance to to get um, squared away with their paperwork and everything that they need to do in the local area. And then they can stand post if there's a strike. Um, the same thing applies with operations. Otherwise, companies will typically wait until there's a labor dispute and then deploy the team. They haven't pre-deployed anybody. There could be some um, you know, additional time to get everybody to the site and get everybody ramped up and ready to go. So you mentioned on your podcast um, the CNH strike. And yes. that... I think that would be a good example. You folks were not involved in it. I, you know, if we were not saying that, yeah, but <laughs> yes. that was a good example that <clears throat> of a company that remained fully operational during almost a nine month strike. And yes. then I think it was the final vote when the company told the union, you know, or sent letters, I think, according to the press to the strikers saying, if you don't accept this last, last best and final offer, the replacement workers were going to start permanently replacing you. And that kind of like brought it to an end, I think. Yeah. But, yeah. But you're, so what, what you folks do and leaving CNH off the table for a moment is literally you make sure that company is going to operate through the strike. Correct. Yeah. So we go through, you know, a very detailed process to understand the company's operations you know, under normal conditions, work with them to put together a staffing plan. Now what happens on the back end that the companies don't see is all of the effort that goes into um, finding those personnel, maintaining uh, constant communication with those personnel, trying to provide them with updates on, on negotiations. Oftentimes, you know this, right? Contract negotiations will get extended. So if I'm doing recruiting right. for several hundred people and there's a contract extension for 30 days and another contract extension for 30 days, that group of 200 people that we maybe needed ready initially is likely not going to be available anymore two months from now. So it's a constant recruiting campaign. It's constantly staying in touch with these individuals. It's running background checks, which due to labor shortages that impact everybody across the country, sometimes take longer now than they used to. Um, and so, you know, it's it's kind of like a dance in terms of staying in touch, staying in communication, doing additional recruiting, things like that. Well, and the, the personnel that you're recruiting, they're kind of putting their lives on hold a little bit if they think there's a gig coming up. But <laughs> then, you know, if it does get extended for 30 days, they're going to want to find some way to make money, right? Yes. That's, that's so, that churn that you're seeing in your pool. Yep, exactly. And so, and that's the, I think the biggest change to the strike industry right now is the demand for projects unrelated to labor disputes has increased so much. So companies um, are advertising for strike jobs and uh, likely contract staffing projects with certainty around it. So you have a pool of workers with the skill sets needed. You're offering them potentially you know, a maybe job for an unknown duration, or I have this awesome project over here that's going to last three to six months that is certain. And here's, you know, here's the pay, here's the location. You can have all the information, whereas the other one's always kind of a little bit sketchy. They don't know who the company is. They don't know if and when it's going to happen. Um, and so, it, you know, people aren't going to wait around for a strike when they have all these other opportunities to choose from. So, it's a little bit more challenging just, uh, you know, than it, than it used to be. Yeah. You know, I should mention for the um, folks who would be listening to this from the union's perspective, this is 
<clears throat> preparing for a strike on a company's end is no different than what unions tell their members in terms of preparing for a strike as well. I mean, from, and I recall this from having been out on strike and what our union used to do is, you know, we used to tell the members, start saving your money six months in advance. You know, don't buy a boat if the contract expires in the summertime, you know, all that sort of stuff. And nowadays unions have a better strike pay than back in my day. But, you know, so you see the UAW and I think the Teamsters are up to $400 a week, but still much less than you're going to be making if you're working. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, on the company's end, so they're, they're may or may not be working with an agency, but they're likely, you know, building up inventory, building up raw materials if yeah. they can do that. And just trying to fully prepare, you know, get the facility kind of cleaned up, taking a look, you know, do we have fences that are broken? Do we have... Are cameras functional? Things like that. There's a there's a lot that goes in to the preparation, or should go into the preparation. Um, even things as as you get down to it, and a, and a strike is imminent, painting the property lines, like things like that. There's a lot. There's a lot. Well, and so to break that down, the reason you paint the property lines is picketers should not be um, crossing that property line, right? Correct. Um, and so that is something that you want to do um, so that everybody knows where that property line is. But it's also part of the security, um, you know, requirements or not requirements, but it's 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 helpful for the security. So uh, it's a, against the law to have a picket line, uh, to have a, excuse me, to have a weapon on the picket line. So uh, security officers are armed with video cameras, right? They're there to do evidence documentation on the picket line. And so they are trained to know what they can and cannot document on a picket line. And so, you know, you want to make sure that that property line is clear. Um, if somebody is crossing that or there's an, there's an issue, that video documentation is going to be, you know, used in, in various ways. So I always tell people that it's having the right security team in place is critical because it's your best defense against false accusations and against any incidents that may actually occur on the picket line. And I know things are changing now a little bit um, just with everything going on in the world. But when I start, well, not even when I started, before you know, when the company started 30 years ago, I don't know, you may recall the Detroit news strikes, some oh, of yeah. the, the the steel mill strikes in the early 90s. So we were involved in those. And it was like a war zone almost. There was trucks being lit on fire, steel projectiles, rocks being thrown. I mean, it was, it was a lot. Um, that doesn't usually happen now. I think things are getting a little bit more challenging from a security perspective. But what you do typically find is silly things, and I, I have video of this. I just, I was digging through some um, strike videos recently to show one of my coworkers, and you'll have a situation where you'll have a vehicle entering um, the property, and a picketer will jump up on the hood of the car and pretend to be hit, roll off. And, you know, if there's no documentation of what really happened, then they can call the police, they can call the media, they can say they were hit by a car on the picket line, they can make it a big thing. You have security on the picket line and have video documentation. Um, usually you have cameras on both sides of vehicles coming in and out just in case so you can get everything. And then if the police do show up, you can show them the video and what, what actually happened. Um, and, and silly things like that often happen. And one thing I do want to say, I think a big uh, misconception that people have is we have a good relationship with our union, so we don't need security or we don't need a lot of security. 
it's rarely the striking union members who are causing the most mischief on the picket line. It's the supporters. It's the union members that are coming to support. Maybe they're not even union members. They're just coming to support the union that's on strike. It's usually those people that tend to cause the most trouble um, because they don't have to go back to work when the strike's over and face these people day in and day out, right? So they're not as tied into, you know, um, being on their best behavior. You raise an interesting point because um, there are certain ramifications. If a striker engages in what would otherwise be unlawful conduct, if the strike is called off or over, that individual could be terminated or not be brought back to work due to that unlawful activity, right? which could be blocking ingress and egress, could be throwing a rock, whatever the case may be, right? That's unlawful. So they may not be entitled to their jobs back. Whereas if you have somebody who just shows up from, you know, happens to be somebody from the union hall, not employed by that employer, they may get some sort of penalty, which, you know, civil disobedience or, you know, whatever criminal mischief maybe, but mostly something that is less financially harmful to them than would be for an actual union member who's out on strike doing that. Absolutely. Yep. It's, It's interesting because I don't know that a lot of people think of it that way. Unless you're involved in the business. Right. And, and I will tell people when we're talking about things, you know, consider where you're located. Are you in an area where it's heavily unionized? There's unions all over the place. Then, you know, you're going to have a lot of people coming to support. Um, are you on a main street or are you is the company kind of, you know, way off the, the main street? You know, it, there's a lot of factors that go into how many people might show up. Um, but you do want to be mindful of that. And I think today and the situation that's, you know, that what's going on all, all across the country with increase and in, increases in vandalism um, and, and theft and things like that. Think about, you know, am I in an area where this is happening already? You may need additional security beyond just, you know, what you would normally think of as strike security, just to make sure that everybody's protect, protected. Um, the other thing, too, we used to do a lot of uh, warehousing and distribution work back in the day. And for companies that have CDL drivers on strike, when you're bringing in replacement workers, the other thing that you need to be mindful of is, um, you know, security at your customers' locations, because those trucks will be followed. They will be harassed. They will harass your customers. Um, They used to call them roving picket lines, and they would follow the track. Well, this happened with the UPS strike back in 97. They followed the UPS trucks who were being operated by managers. And then we set up and pick it around the UPS truck at deliveries. Yeah, it's also best. It's a good idea to have two people in the vehicle beyond just the CDL driver, um, because if they're leaving the truck, you don't want to leave that unattended because it's very easy that they can come, you know, damage the truck or take stuff off of the truck, whatever it may be. Right. Yeah, you see that uh, occasionally crop up. So let me ask you a question. This is an easy one. What is a jack rock? (laughs) Um, It's been a while since I've seen one, but I do believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, I do believe it is nails or or large nails that are kind of welded together and then, um, you know, kind of, uh, what's the word, welded together and then, so they're they're used to throw underneath the vehicle and pop tires, so. Right. um, Yeah, I, I used that expression recently and I got this like quizzical look on the person's face I was like, you don't know what a jack rock is? It's, basically... I have, we have some pictures on our website, I think, where we have some security officers taking, taking photographs of the jack rocks that are on, on you know, uh, in the middle of the road. Well, it's... and that, 
and that's why you want to have security number one, but also, you know, if you're operating a plant and jack rocks are being thrown, that means somebody's got to go out there and sweep them up and they are, they're either nails or spikes that are welded together like an old jack when you used to play jacks and they throw them down on the driveway and pop tires. But yeah, there's a lot of shenanigans that can take place that are not ideal. I would, another thing, you know, that's more of an outside thing for vehicles coming in and out I would also um, mention that sometimes, you know, there there can be sabotage to equipment, especially manufacturing equipment, before a union decides to go on strike. Um, So that's something to be mindful of in terms of preparation and making sure either checking equipment and machinery to make sure things haven't been toyed with, Um, uh, maybe even bringing in security in advance to prevent those kind of things. Yeah, my recollection, um, I have an old strike plan on, somewhere on my laptop, but it's essentially, you know, if you've got trucks and they're not secure under camera, like even putting locking gas caps on there. So you don't have sugar put in the gas tanks, for example. Yep. Or brake lines cut. Yep. Yeah. And then it, it happens. It's, it's unfortunate, but it, it happens. It's not uncommon. Um, how, how soon into a bargaining process would you recommend companies start looking at this sort of stuff? So that's going to be a function of the size of the bargaining unit primarily, and then also a little bit in terms of the replacement work or resources that you might need. I would say <clears throat> larger bargaining units, thousands, typically companies are preparing you know, a year in advance um, to at least initiate those conversations and start pulling their um, plans together. If it's a smaller um, smaller bargaining unit, less replacement workers needed, maybe less skilled, I would still I would still get those conversations started at least three months in advance. Maybe I mean the more time the better. A, a company can tell you, and in, in this mar- in this market, I would definitely ask what their you know what their schedule looks like. Um, you know, do they have availability uh, for that time frame? <clears throat> As we were winding down our services and around the times where there was a lot of over, overlapping large strikes in terms of, I think it was Nabisco, Kellogg, John Deere, Allegheny Technologies, a lot of those were overlapping with each other. Um, and so we've always been really good at this. Our CEO uh, has just always been methodical about how he approaches things. You want to make sure that an agency isn't overcommitting around that same time. Whether or not they're going to be truthful about that, I don't know. Um, but that's something that we would be very mindful of. Do we have too many large contracts that are aligning around the same time? Because what we would hate to have happen is to overpromise and underdeliver. Um, so I would ask that question if it were me on the other side. I would ask them about availability around the time of that contract expiration to get a feel. Some companies may say, you know, we have other things scheduled. We can't commit. Um, others may not have a problem um, taking on that project. So I would I would say the sooner the better in terms of that outreach, but definitely depends on the size of the bargaining unit. Yeah, and of course we're seeing, um, so you've got so many contracts coming up for renewal this year, which are big ones. And then, but we're also seeing like a bunch of small ones going to the bargaining table, like Starbucks, for example. And I'd, you know, with them, they're 15 to at most probably 30 people per bargaining unit. Mm-hmm. And they're all specially trained because they're quote baristas, right? Sure. So if they strike, I, I would assume the their company response would be just shut down the store until they decide not to. 
Yeah, I would think so. I, I, I mean, I haven't, I don't know, maybe I know you pay attention to these things. Maybe you've heard differently, but I, I, you know, there's a lot of those facilities. They might be able to just simply move people to support another, if they wanted to keep it open, you know, move some people from other locations nearby and bring them in. Um, right. Or just go to, just go to, uh, orders as opposed to opening the store, that sort of stuff, the drive through. Yeah. Um, there's, so my recollection, um, and I don't know the legal boundaries on this, and I only know this from having um, been out on strike, is there's there's the oftentimes when you see strikers going around in circles in front of driveways, that you're not allowed to stop because you're blocking ingress and egress. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, so I, th- I, I, be- I do believe that is going to vary from location to location. So we did a large strike for a beverage company on the West Coast many years ago. Um, uh, and so they were a beverage distributor. They had a lot of trucks they had to get out. And in that location in particular, the union members could, you know, be in, in the middle of the driveway and prevent that truck coming out for two minutes, but not any longer than two minutes. So again, that goes back to having the right security in place to document that, right? Any infractions violating that, you know, that you don't want to do that. But they could legally do that for two minutes. So two minutes times every truck that's leaving in the morning to trying to get their product out, that's that's a huge disruption. Um, so that, that can vary, but um, yeah. So in that sense, you'd probably, um, mm-hmm. you'd probably want to stagger your leave times for drivers or your return times. Yeah, yeah. So and that's only- those those are those those things. That's part of like the strategy and planning that you know when we're putting together those strike plans from our perspective or an agency's perspective. You know they have all those years of experience. They've seen all of the things, right? So they know all of the things that you want to consider and think about. And so having those conversations in advance, so that the company can take that back internally and decide. Okay, so based upon these things that may or may not happen, here's how we're going to handle it. It's so important to make sure that you have contingency plans for all of the big variables and all the big risks that are associated with the labor dispute. So quick, funny story. The reason I know about that, do not stop in the middle of the, the entrance or exit is because when we're on strike in 1986, that's how far back this goes. <laughs> I stopped. I was like, I don't know. I think I was 20, 19 or 20 stopped in the middle of the entrance and uh, Phoenix PD cop, said, if you don't get moving, I'm going to arrest you. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I will move. Thank you. That has always stuck with me. Yep. And yep. I don't and know why our picket line captain didn't tell us this ahead of time, but. Well, there's a lot of information, right? There's a lot of rules that, that go into yep. both sides and it's, it's hard to stay on top of it. Um, I, I guess I, one thing I would point out regarding the police. So police and private security have different roles in a labor dispute. Oftentimes, we will work side by side the police. Sometimes there's even, you know, we did, I believe it was a lockout for a nuclear power facility. So we had our security, the police were there, and then the regular armed guards at all different layers. But the police are there to keep the peace, right, and make any arrests. But they're not going to do any sort of documentation, um, which is critical, again, against any false accusations or any incidents that occur. So some companies will say, you know, we're fine, we're going to hire the police, uh, I would just make sure that you understand those differences, uh, you know, in, in terms of your, your planning, because it is, 
it is beneficial, I think, to have those security. If you don't have security on uh, on site already, they can, you know, kind of secure the perimeter, make sure nobody's uh, coming onto your property 24-7, and then also do that evidence documentation that's critical. Well, you mentioned the importance of getting documentation. Um, and there's a couple instances where I would see that as being important is one, if you have mass picketing, mass rallies, stuff like that, and they're blocking entrances and exits or ingress and egress, the um, ability to get temporary restraining orders. Yep. Yep. And then temporary also, restraining orders and injunctions. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that that's, you know, part and parcel of the process because from a union's perspective, they're, their job of striking is to try to shut your job down, mm-hmm. right? And and cause you as much financial harm as possible. And and your job as the employer and those that service the employers is to make sure the company stays in business. Yeah. And then, you know, whether it involves temporary replacement workers, permanent replacement workers and all that sort of stuff, that's, you know, kind of splitting hairs, but yeah. <laughs> make sure that your business stays open is the key, I guess, for employers. Yes, absolutely. So um, are you, well, you're not really servicing at all right now, any employers going through this. Um, but when you're talking to uh, employers or clients, are you also working with their labor council or is it all internal people? So <clears throat> to, uh, we do sometimes. So initially, typically it's, you know, HR, labor relations who reach out and then they get the rest of their team involved. Um, when we start doing preparations at the site, you know, for a company that needs to make a major correction to their contract um, and a strike is highly likely, oftentimes we'll go to the client site in advance and our security team, off, uh, our security executives typically will talk with their labor council about things, give them a little bit of a comfort level that we know what our, what we're doing, make sure they understand our role, um, talk with them about, you know, the evidence that we're collecting and what we're going to do with that, things like that. It's all kept in a verifiable chain of custody. What we would do is we would have evidence specialists that kind of go through and go through all that video, cut it down to the the clips that the, you know, labor council or just the attorney, whoever's going to court, um, just what they need to see, right? So they don't have to go through all the hours of um, the video. Part of that process typically is also, so we'll meet with the council and then we would meet with local police and just kind of bring them into the fold as well. Let them know that a labor dispute is a possibility. Talk with them about that. The company talks with them about that. And we just kind of establish those lines of communication and give them, you know, a little comfort level again to what our role is there. If we're going to be there, if police are going to be there as well, you know, make sure we're all on the same page with uh, what that's going to look like if a labor dispute happens. How do um, how do unionized police departments or officers, how do they deal with you? Like, are they friendly or are they, because I can see some of them might be conflicted. So that is a excellent Especially question. where you are. <laughs> so we have had to deal with that over the years. It can be, it can be dangerous, honestly. I mean, uh, back you know, early 90s, it was a little wild. There were instances where the client would call the police and there would be a huge delay in response. And when you're talking about, um, you know, property being set on fire, you know, steel projectiles, rocks being thrown, like all those things, 
you know, a delay in response is not fantastic. Um, and so that can be dangerous. It's, you know, they're, they're in a hard place, obviously, right? They need to do their job, but at the same time, they're not exactly sympathetic to the situation. So having the right security in place is critical there. Um, you know, if it becomes too much of an issue, I, I do believe the next step, and this is really <laughs> more the expertise of my security uh, executives, but I do believe the next step there with enough evidence and enough issues is that it sort of escalates it to the state police. So hopefully mm. it doesn't it doesn't have to get to that point, but having that communication and having, you know, the right documentation, I'm going to keep saying that because that really is critical. Um you know, it's it can be a sticky situation, but you just have to work through it. So for employers, this is not something to wait till the last minute for, and nor is it something you want to just wing. Yeah, I I hate I hate to do this, but I'm gonna do it because I feel like it's for the greater good. Even still today, I will get calls from people on a Friday afternoon, call at three or four o'clock in the afternoon, and they say, I'm calling, um, you know, we have a strike vote over the weekend, and I just want to um, put a strike plan in place in case they go on strike next week. That is not ideal. That is never ideal. (laughs) Please don't do that. Please don't do that this year. Um, Be more proactive. I get a lot of calls from people who are telling me they are, you know, facing a potential labor dispute in the next couple of weeks. And I'm like, okay, when does your contract expire? They tell me it expired seven months ago. And I'm like, really? okay. So I'm like, ideally, you know, I mean, I, I don't necessarily make them feel bad, but ideally you want to want to have your strike plan in place before your contract expires. Um, I get it. A lot of people think they're not going to have a strike. These things can just happen suddenly. But, you know, it's internally we kind of talk about it as a strike is the equivalent of a corporate heart attack. Don't really kind of just want to wing it, right? A strike plan is an insurance policy for your company. It's a plan to continue your business. It's, yes, it maybe only comes up every few years, but you can use that same plan each year, build from it, tweak it. It's a good investment for your company, whether or not you're doing it all internally, whether or not you have, you know, people consulting with you on it, put together a good strike plan. Don't call for a quote three days before and hope for the best, if you can avoid it. That goes back to hope for the best, prepare for the worst, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, I can't stress that enough. Well, Michelle, I like the fact that um, although even if you were still doing strike services, I, I'd want to do this podcast with you. But the fact that you're not, you're just giving advice is, I think, more beneficial right now, you know, for for business leaders out there, HR people, et cetera, because I think we're going to see a lot more of it, especially during a tight labor market. And, you know, it's stuff that's part and parcel of labor relations. Yeah, I agree. And I and I, I'm I'm glad to be on here in this capacity because I, I certainly don't want it to come across as though I'm trying to sell my services. In fact, I am not. We are not offering those services. Um, but you know, I do there, I just I, I've seen it all, I've I've been asked it all. And so if there's anything I can do to help people understand that, you know, you really should put a plan in place well in advance. I'm I'm happy to do that. I, I still get calls all the time. Obviously, we've been in the industry for a long time. 
I do my best to advise people. I do my best when they call me and they're facing these types of situations to direct them to other companies who I know have been around as long as we have uh, based upon what their needs are, you know, obviously what type of entity they are and what they do, direct them to an agency that should be able to provide them the service that we're no longer providing. Um, and so, you know, I think these conversations are really important. Strike planning is not something that is fun. It's not sexy. People don't want to do it. They want to put it off. Um, so it's, you know, it's important to have these conversations and make sure that people know what best practices are and what to think about, especially when things are changing in the industry. Right. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on Labor Relations Radio. I like this, you know, you do my podcast, I'll do yours thing. Yeah, no, it worked out well. <laughs> and for anybody who didn't hear our podcast um, interview on the U U.S. Manufacturing Workforce podcast, it's called Strike While the Iron is Hot, What's Happening in Labor Relations. It was a great conversation. I highly recommend checking that one out as well. Yeah, and I'm going to link to it under the uh, audio portion of this episode as well. Well, perfect. I, th I thank you so much for bringing me on, Peter. It was a pleasure. And I'm always here if you ever want to revisit or talk about any of these fun things again. That's awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Michelle Vincent with Maddie Corp. And although they no longer do strike contingency planning or services, she is a wealth of information. And I enjoyed having her on the podcast. Uh, I did hers last year and, and we'll get together again. In any case, one thing that she recommends, as I do, is don't wait. You hope for the best, prepare for the worst, but you want to prepare the sooner the better. You want to reach out to experts on the process, um, whether it's labor attorney, staffing agency that does strike management. In any case, don't wait. So that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. You can leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode, or you can give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Oh, and happy Valentine's Day, by the way. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.